Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. We talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to talk about home churches, the underground church, and the church as a public-facing institution in culture. So Aaron, let's begin our discussion by talking about what the church actually is. As we think about the word church, what's that mean? What's it all about? Well, the word itself um, comes from a German root. The English word comes from a German root. But if you look at the um, New Testament, the word ecclesia is the common word used to describe the church. That's the word from which we translate in, into English, into the word church. That word can be broken down into two components, ek and kaleo, basically outcalled. So many people will say, well, that by definition is what the church is. It's just the called out ones. And there's some truth to that. But the whole meaning of the word church cannot just be found in its constituent parts. So the church is more than just the called out ones. Uh, if, if we reduce our definition of the church down to sort of just the etymology of the word, we kind of create a little bit of a fallacy. So we need to allow the, the context of scripture to define what the church is. And there's, there's a lot of things the church does and is, but in, in the Greek world, for example, uh, ecclesia essentially means in English, a few words that come to mind would be a community, an assembly or a gathering. So that's kind of the meaning of the word. It's an assembly, a gathering, a community. And in the New Testament, when it's applied to the people of God, it's obviously an assembly, a gathering, or a community of Christian people who have been called out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to represent his purposes and wishes in the world. Right. That makes a lot of sense there. Now, what would uh, maybe could delineate between a church versus just a gathering of believers. Like when I have five Christian friends over to my house, is that church or what What makes the church church? So when we think of the word church, we should probably think of it on two levels, maybe even three. Uh, the first would be the universal church. So there's many, many people around the world that profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've come to faith in Christ. They've surrendered themselves to the gospel and they are my genuine spiritual brothers and sisters, and I am their spiritual brother. So even if we've never met and never worshipped together on a Sunday or Wednesday or whatever, we are part of the universal church. We are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ on earth, and we will spend eternity together on the new heavens and the new earth. Now, generally in the New Testament, though, Paul is speaking and the various other apostles are speaking about local churches. So we have the church in Ephesus or the churches in Galatia or the church in uh, Philippi or the Laodicean church, right? So we have localized expressions of the body of Christ in different communities and those are local churches. A helpful analogy is uh, to think of the universal church kind of as the equivalent of you know, humanity as a whole. So I'm, I'm a human being, obviously, 
and I am part of humanity, so global humanity. And we share a lot of things in common with other human beings, and we care for other human beings, and we debate other human beings, and so forth and so on. But humanity is divided up into family units. So I have a family. I'm the head of my family. I have a wife. I have five children. One of my children is now married, so he has stepped out from under our authority and now he has his own household and um, my other child will, will be married, Lord willing, this year. And that'll, that'll form a new household, a new family. So the local church is kind of like the equivalent of the family. Uh, there's a bit of a structure to it. There's, a, there's an, an identity to it. And then there's the, uh, the universal church. Now, if a bunch of people come over to your home uh, you wouldn't say, and they're all Christian, you wouldn't say, hey, you guys aren't part of the church. They are part of the church. They're part of the universal church, but a bunch of Christians just sort of hanging out in a home doesn't actually constitute what we would call a local church. Now, we don't want to get too nitpicky, um, but many people think that whenever a gathering of Christian people together get together, that constitutes a church. Um, it's not like sinful or anything like that, or it's not heresy for a bunch of Christians to get together and to, to worship and to sing and to teach. There's obviously a ton of edification, a lot of good that can come out of that. But a local church properly defined is uh, a gathering of people called out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who covenant together to uh, preach the word of God to one another to celebrate the ordinances together. And a properly constituted church also has duly appointed elders. So we can think of, uh, you know, situations in the scripture where, um, you know, Paul writes to, to, the, to the saints, the church at such and such a location, and the elders. Or in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul, is, as he teaches Titus and kind of gives Titus an assignment, Basically, basically says to him, um, I want you to go and sort of um, finish up some things that were left undone. You're like, well, what's left undone? I want you to appoint elders in every town. So, yeah, a group of Christians can function together and worship and celebrate communion and all that kind of thing. But they're sort of, to use that biblical language, left undone. There's something incomplete uh, about a gathering of believers until biblically qualified, duly appointed elders are installed, and always in the plural, uh, to oversee that local assembly. So they don't have to have a building. They don't have to have uh, you know a pipe organ. They don't have to have a worship team. They have to uh, you know be baptized believers. They have to um, celebrate the the ordinances or sacraments if you prefer uh, together. And there needs to be some spiritual leadership. You know, in the same way that a family isn't just a collection of children or a collection of guys or a collection of ladies or a collection of husbands and wives, there's there's structure to that. There's parents, the father is the head of the home, the spiritual leader of the relationship. And while they're all equally human and all equally value valuable and you know, ontologically there's no inferiority or superiority. 
there's functional differences. So uh, a New Testament church properly constituted, again, is a group of Christians gathered out from the world to represent the purposes and values of the kingdom of God. And um, they celebrate the ordinances and there will be duly appointed leadership, eldership over that assembly. Yeah. So people are often saying things like, you know, church is the people. And right now, often in reaction to some misguided notion that we maybe believe church is the building. Obviously, we don't believe that. And it may be confusing for some people with our terminology saying, I'm going to church today when we're going to an empty building. Uh, We know that the church isn't the building. The church is the people. But why do we even have to talk then about church buildings, home churches? What is and why is the discussion about where and how we meet so relevant? Yeah. Yeah, that's good because there's a lot of uh, ambiguity in people's minds. Um, I would just say, you know, without trying to be offensive, most people that um, challenge this whole notion of a church meeting and an address that kind of say, oh, the church is just the people. Generally, they're not people that have ever led a church. They don't understand the dynamics of how to get people together and the benefits and pitfalls of church structures. Um, they tend to be sort of idealistic. Um, some of them are introverts. They they talk about this because they don't really want to be part of something where they're they're accountable or they're they're exposed to others. But um, it is true that the church is the people that. You know, technically speaking, the building is not the church. Um, the but at the same time, if you go to a bank, technically the building is not the bank. the 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 organization uh, is the bank. The people that collect your money and care for your money and handle your money and give you your money back or take your money from you. That's the bank. Um, in the same way, the church is not the building. It's the people. It's it's the community of faith that meets together to preach the word of God, discipline one another, uh, worship the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, prepare and equip each other to go and be salt and light uh, in the world around us. Um, But let's talk about, let's go back to my analogy of the family. So the family is not the structure. You know, we often use home and house as if it's the same. And home is really maybe closer to family in the way we think of it than houses. The house is a structure. The family meets in the structure and they're kind of, I guess, a home of sorts. At least that's how I would typically use the language. Um, But when you get people together, the bottom line is you need a structure. You know, unless you're living in the Garden of Eden where there's, you know, no temperature fluctuation and there's never any rainstorms, you need a structure. So it, it's just a, uh, it's like if you want to get from point A to B, you need a vehicle or a horse or a snowmobile or you just don't have to, you have to walk a lot. You need, you know, legs to get there. And I, I, I'm i just kind of a practical guy. I think of this, the structure as the place within which the spiritual family meets. And if you have a very small spiritual family, well, a house will do. I think there's pluses and minuses to that from a very practical and missional perspective. We can talk about that. Um, if you have a bigger family, you need a little bit bigger building. If you have a really big family, you need an even bigger building. So it's a it's a common house. So we, we often say when people come into our worship center or our auditorium, this is our living room. 
This is where our family meets regularly. And then there are, there are you know, other rooms in the church facility as well that serve our purposes. Um, so nothing wrong with meeting in a home. I think that um, one of the one of the one of the upsides of meeting in a home are that um, it's it tends to be more intimate. Uh, you know, people do long for intimate relationships. It can be very sort of earthy and and real. You know, you can look someone right in the eye. You can ask direct questions. It's a, generally a smaller group. You know, very few houses would comfortably fit more than maybe thirty people. There's opportunities for everyone to really sort of get to know each other, but in a in a large uh, constituency, you're, you know, let's say your your church is in a large city where people are maybe not used to going to small stores where everyone knows your name, but they they feel more comfortable with a certain sense of anonymity. It can be extremely intimidating for people to be invited to someone's home for a worship service. I mean, the first word that comes to mind is cult. You know, is this a cult? Is this a cult? Like what, what's, what are they going to ask of me? Are they going to ask me to, you know, deep questions? Are they going to, are they going to ask me to pray? Are they going to, you know, quiz me and grill me on things that's just can be extremely uncomfortable for especially for more introverted type people i i I actually remember many years ago an interesting story i was in a a small group sort of a small i guess you could call it a house church and um we invited a a fellow and his wife over and he wasn't a christian now he has since become a christian but he wasn't a christian at the time and i i just didn't have time to tell this the leader that this man wasn't a Christian. So we kind of were going around the room at one point asking for people to give a prayer request and pray. And, you know, person A gave a prayer request and prayed and then person B, and we're sort of moving around the the, the, the circle toward this guy. And I'm thinking, oh man, I hope the small group leader understands this guy's not a Christian. Well, he didn't. So he gets so many, there was this very, just very awkward moment where he asked this guy to pray and the guy basically like, no. Um, so one of the benefits of of uh, you know meeting in more of a shall we say a neutral space a public space is that and I I didn't think about this when I was first a church planter but it sort of dawned to me as I observed people over the years it's okay to allow a certain anonymity it's okay to give space in a church for people to just watch and observe to kind of check things out without feeling sort of overwhelmed. So you want to be friendly when people come in, you want to be, you know, loving, but some people, yeah, they want you to say hi, but really not much more until maybe their third or fourth or fifth time out. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's other things we could talk about, but um, the, the church is officially the people. We are the gathering of believers, but, the structure you meet in or the place you meet does have an effect on what kind of ministry you can do and how, you know, effective you can be. Yeah. Now you mentioned a word in there that many people might've heard before the word cult. And I'm just curious out of uh, sheer curiosity, what would you define? <laughs> how would you define the word cult? Cause you know, some non-Christians or even yeah. maybe some Christians could throw that around yeah. and, uh, we want to obviously stick to good language. Uh, yeah. So how would you define that? Sure. Well, that's a good question. You know, when we push to reopen our church, we'd get some, you know, nasty messages from people. Oh, you're a cult. You're a cult, right? Because you tried to open your church and you did things maybe uh, 
you know, you, you were in the minority of churches doing this. So people, people use this word very loosely. So um, first of all, the occult, that's sometimes confused for cult. An occult is basically a group that worships the devil, demons, you know, dark arts, that kind of thing. Uh, the word cult is, can be both positive and negative. So when we, in, in Old Testament studies, when we're looking at like the structures and systems of the sacrificial system, we could call that the cultus. So uh, the the structures and systems of, you know, how to bring your lamb to the altar, how it's slaughtered, all the, the, the who's qualified to do that and what the results are and the messaging, all of that is called the cultus. So it's not always a negative word. It could just refer to the structures and systems of doing something that's quote unquote religious. But the modern definition of cult would be a group that denies uh, creedal, uh, the historical creeds of the church. So you're not a cult if you have a different view on baptism. You're not a cult if you have a different view on men and women in ministry. You're not a cult if you choose to meet when the government says you can't. You're not a cult if you have a strong leader. You're not a cult if you meet in a home. You know, you're not a cult if you meet in a field. You're a cult if you deny the divinity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, um, the triunity of God, you know, these, the, you know, the second coming, um, th- these basic historic orthodox doctrines that both Protestants, uh, Catholics, and the Orthodox Church would all hold to, you know, based upon the you know, Apostolic Creed, Nicene Creed, these kinds of things. So we have to be a little bit careful not to just um, throw the word around. Now, a sect is basically a group of Christians that, you know, may may hold to the um, uh, the historic Orthodox statements of you know the Apostolic Creed or again Nicene Creed or whatnot, but some of their secondary beliefs are considered like very aberrant or like very like abnormal um, and 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 uh, the, you know we would consider them true brothers and sisters in Christ, but we would say you know guys like you're you're, you're really playing fast and loose with Scripture or. Uh, you know, you sort of have some, there's some red flags, some yellow flags about what you're teaching, maybe your leadership structure, style, or how exclusive you are um, compared to, you know, the rest of the church, those kinds of things. So okay. That's a good question. That's good. Thanks for taking that uh, little detour for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked last podcast a little bit about this, but we want to circle back to it again, the Church Institute. Um so how, what is the Church Institute? First of all, we've talked a little bit about what the church is. What's the Church Institute and how does it serve our community? So when we use the, the term Church Institute, we're, we're basically just talking about the church as it manifests itself uh, in public as, quote unquote, an institution, uh, kind of a, a permanent member of society or part of a culture uh, a part of a nation. So we have the people are the church of Jesus Christ. The people could meet in a home, just a collection of believers, meeting in private, worshiping, fellowshipping. The church institute would be, for, ex- for example, uh, the church at a particular address, the church starting Christian schools, the church having a voice in political issues, the church... Um, organizing strategies and mechanisms and programs to feed the poor, to minister to addicts, to help people 
in their marital challenges. So it's like the public face of the church in culture. And in the in Western societies, there typically is a church institute. There's a there's um, a public presence of the church in society. It's recognized. It's acknowledged. Okay, there's ABC Church over here and XYZ Church over here, and uh, oh, this church carries out these functions in society in this neighborhood, or this you know church speaks out to these particular issues. And then we have places like China. Or apart from the uh, you know state-sanctioned church, um, there there really isn't a church institute per se. Most people are forced underground. They're forced into a private rather than public church experience. That doesn't mean they can't have a public or societal impact, because even a house church can have some impact on a society if you know they band together and perform a certain ministry function in society but many in many parts of the world where the church is forced to meet in private it's it has to be uh it it loses out on the opportunities to often be a voice into public matters so unless you believe that your faith is just sort of you and Jesus on an island hanging out and church is just for sort of building up the christians and giving you an experience with God and equipping you for the week, unless that's all you think church is, um, most Christians would say there's a place for the church institute. So for, for example, if you're in a culture where um, euthanasia bills are being passed as they are in our country, Bill C-7, or um, – you know, the, 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 the fakery and falsehood of the, the conversion therapy bills are being passed, Bill C-6. Or we're entering into this almost like lockdownism where every time there's a, a medical, the, the virus spikes, we just lock people down. It's almost like a medical response now. And if the church has a problem with that, this is where like the church institute is best suited to respond. Um, so the, the church institute uh, is you know, a recognized institution within culture. And one of the benefits of that is you tend to be more listened to. So um, perhaps some listeners will feel uncomfortable with this. And I actually feel uncomfortable with it as well, because I wish it wasn't like this. But the reality is the bigger the church, the more public you are, the more clout you have in culture and society. I wish that wasn't the case, but it just is. You know, if, if, uh, the premier gets a letter from, uh, you know, a group of five people that meet in a home on Sunday morning, you know, for worship. There, it's just there's just five individuals writing a letter. But if, you know, again, ABC Church, which has two, three hundred, five thousand, whatever, however many people, a reputation in the community has some sort of recognized charitable status, has a, a history, a legacy. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not, an address, there, there is a sense in which you're going to be listened to to a greater degree. Um, this is also why churches often band together in denominations or networks or fellowships because it gives them, they carry a bigger stick in culture. Uh, they, they're more prominent. They're more like on the map. So, I mean, you can be all super spiritual and say, well, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart, so who really cares how big your church is and, you know, it shouldn't be like that. Well, that's fine. That's a little bit idealistic, though. In a physical world, 
um, the church institute just tends to be listened to and and should, doesn't always leverage it, but should have a bigger voice in issues of social justice. Um, when problems are taking place in culture, the church institute can can speak out. So basically the church institute is the, 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 the church as it expresses itself publicly in culture. And there's a lot of benefits to that. So, you know, house churches have benefits too, as I've already mentioned. They tend to be intimate. They can be very real. Um, I mean, you have fewer common financial expenses. You could pour basically 100% of your money into um, social causes. Um, you know, when churches band together, just like when you buy a house and then you start having kids, the expenses go up. You have electricity bills and gas bills and maybe mortgages and bills to clear the parking lot from snow and on and on and on. Um, so there's, there's some benefit to that, but the downside is you sort of lose, uh, your footprint in culture and your voice is often diminished. So I, I think that there's a, I think wise churches will both promote and build and value the church institute and promote and build and value house churches within their um, church communities. That's a that's an interesting observation you make and maybe helpful for churches as we consider what's to come. Uh, obviously, in light of all that's going on, there certainly seems to be a, quite a lot of threats against the church. So maybe can you speak for a little while, perhaps how we can prepare our people, how leaders listening to this podcast could prepare their people to stay true to their mission even under persecution and threat? Yeah, so here's where we just get into some very practical considerations. Um, you have to think through as a church leader, how can I best equip my people, given my resources, the particular culture I'm in, um, my geography, the number of people I minister to, how, how, do, I, how do I think through structures that will actually facilitate our mission, our values, our beliefs, regardless of the circumstances we're in, but also in response to the circumstances we're in. I, I was re um, reading a book uh, recently, Live Not By Lies, by Rod Dreher, and um, he, he talks about the the rise of soft totalitarianism in the West. And he does a little bit of historical work in some of the events that took place in Europe with the rise of communism and Marxism, and then talks about you know, all the lives that were destroyed from that and how some churches were prepared to endure that and were faithful and others weren't. But in his book, one of the things he talks about is the need to prepare the Western church for the rise of maybe not totalitarianism, but soft totalitarianism. Like the the state is becoming bigger and bigger and controlling everything in life. I've talked about this before, right? They control how you use your property. I want to dig a pond. You got to get a permit. I want to plant a tree. You got to get a permit. Um, I'm putting garbage out to the, uh, in some municipalities, putting garbage out to the curb. You got to have a sticker on it. Um, you got to separate your recycling from your regular trash. You have to have a tag for your dog, you know, like you have to have a driver's license and you got to renew the driver's license. Then you have to have a, uh, a license plate on your vehicle and then you have to have a sticker on the license plate. And 
we're just sort of used to all this. And some of it makes some sense. But the point is, is the state's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's controlling more and more and more. And we think that's normal. So we're starting to see more and more uh, controls on the church. The, the state believes, and unfortunately, a lot of Christians permit this lie to, to continue, that it actually has control over the church. And it doesn't. The state has no control over the worship, the offering of the ordinances, the installation of elders, the number of people that meet. They don't have control over that, but they're claiming it, right? They're claiming that kind of control. And I have a, a hunch that it's going to get worse. I just got word today from a friend through a pretty trusted source that unless something happens, we're looking at a third lockdown in April. Maybe a fourth after that. You know, it's gone from a lockdown to lockdown-ism. So as we think about these kinds of threats and then the threats with the conversion therapy bill, which is 100% sure to be used against the church's proclamation of the gospel. There's no other reason for it because conversion therapy doesn't even happen in Canada. It's going to be used by the radicals against the church. So we think about that. We think about the rise of, of secularism. Um, all, all these threats, the rise of uh, cultural Marxism, all these threats against the church, to which most of the church seems to be either fine with or silent in response to, it, it sounds maybe a little bit outlandish, but we have to prepare our church for an underground strategy without just relinquishing the church institute. So uh, we believe in our church and always have have, I planted this church 20 years ago this year, that as the church grows, there's many benefits and blessings to being, you know, a larger church. There's, there's, I remember when we didn't have a building and all the ministries we couldn't do because we didn't have a building. I remember, you know, we appointed our first elder. Like I've, I've pastored a church that's very small and very large. So, um, but we've always thought that small groups are critical to the spiritual life of growing churches. So as you grow bigger, you kind of grow smaller. So we really strongly encourage our people, and we have, again, for 20 years to be involved in a small group, call it a life group, a discipleship group, or whatever you want to call it, a small group. And we say, we're not a church, you know, just with small groups, but we're a church of small groups. We actually require people to be in small groups in order to become members of our church because so much of our discipleship and pastoral care takes place in those groups. And if we're going to, if someone's going to commit to the church, then we're going to commit to them to do good pastoral care and ministry and accountability and all that. So the mechanism, one of the main mechanism we use for that is small groups. So everyone's in a small group. And small groups, I would say, generally on average around 10-ish, you know, 10 or so people, might be eight, might be 12, but about 10 people. Well, these meet in homes. We we encourage them not to meet in the church facility. Um, a few do, but most don't. And um, they meet in homes. And it's an opportunity to, you know, show hospitality to people you might not know, to, you know, ask for very specific prayer requests, to give opportunities for people to teach and to preach that may not feel comfortable or be skilled to do it in a larger setting. It's an opportunity to do counseling. Most of our counseling takes place in small groups. 
And um, those are just a huge blessing. I've been in many over the years. I think they're a critical discipleship tool, but they also prepare the church for future persecution, as Dreyer mentions in his book, Live Not By Lies. It, you're preparing your people. You're, you're helping your people to, to see that church is not just, you know, a Sunday morning, the big church, the, 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 the preaching to the whole, the celebration of the ordinances, but it's all, it also, there's, there's a sense in which the church can function on a certain level, again, notwithstanding the deficits of casting aside the church institute in small groups. Then we're, we, we very much value and appreciate the church institute. We're going to fight for it. We are absolutely in favor of having an address, having a sufficient facility, being able to invite people in from off the street, having a large corporate worship experience. My life has been so impacted over the years by corporate worship. I can't even describe to you how much. You know, being in, in a room with hundreds of people that are singing and worshiping the Lord, I mean, that just charges my battery. Preaching or hearing the word of God preached and you're seeing the people of God lean in. And there's a sense in which God is moving among the whole and we're all sort of tracking in the same direction and God is manifesting his presence among us. Being able to, to you know, to get up and, and to hug and care for and reach out, shake hands with people. And you see people come into the, the church building at times and you see their shoulders just sort of drop and they're like, ah, I'm home. You know, I've been in a battlefield all week. I'm home. Then there's opportunities we have to do, you know, day camps and large group Bible studies and youth groups and, and on and on and on. There's just countless numbers of blessings to being able to have an address and express yourself as a church institute uh, into culture. And we want to continue to do that. And, you know, it's the church institute that writes the letters and you know, lobbies with the government when things are taking place. But there's a third thing that we're thinking we want to do, and that is um, to appoint, uh, to encourage our people to, we will basically we'll take like two or three small groups and we'll cluster them up into what we call flocks. And those flocks are each overseen by one of our elders. And um, right now we're encouraging our people to meet six times a year. So you'd meet Let's say your small group is meeting every other week. So you're meeting with your small group. You're meeting with it again. You're meeting with it again. And then the fourth meeting, you meet with two or three other small groups in a flock. And you have a church service together. Um, you know, One of the elders preaches and you, you worship together and you celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this allows for maybe 30 or 40 people to meet together. So you see what we're doing. We want people to be able to experience one-on-one -on -one discipleship. We want people to be blessed in small groups. We want people to be blessed in sort of medium-sized groups. And we want people to be blessed and be a public voice collectively together as the church institute into culture and society. I think this is a, a wise thing because each of those levels of discipleship has different pluses and minuses to it. They also prepare our people to meet quote unquote underground if, um, you know, the the authorities forbid what God commands, which is to meet and to worship. Uh, so it enables us to sort of um, stay on mission and accomplish our core purposes, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. 
And I, I would just strongly encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's in church leadership, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't just rely upon the corporate Sunday morning experience to disciple your people. Don't just, you know, don't, don't throw that away and just all run into homes and small groups. Don't just, you know, meet one-on-one. Um, try to create structures and opportunities within your church where people can be discipled again, one-on-one in small groups, in larger settings, and then also for the church to be a voice collectively into culture and society. I think this is uh, a diversified approach that we're, we're seeing it bear fruit in our church. And I, I'm convinced it will continue to do that. That's good. Now, some now some uh, churches may be in smaller contexts where they're not, you know, blessed with as many leaders already existing in their context. Just real quick, if you could give like two or three tips to, a, let's say, a pastor that has few life group leaders around, they don't have a lot of small group leaders, maybe two or three tips that you would give to getting that process started or equipping them. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that. Well, first of all, if you're a small church pastor, I can 100% relate to you. Um, I'm, I'm a large church pastor now, but I used to be a small church pastor. When we started this church, I remember when there were seven of us, and then there were 12, and then there were 15, and then there were 35. And you know now we have, well, prior to the lockdown, we probably had 1,000 people that identified with our church and maybe 850 or so out on an average Sunday. So I... I, I know what it's like to pastor a church of 30, 200, 500, 600, 800, and so forth. I, I get it all. And it's um, it takes a long time to kind of build structures. So you're not going to build them overnight. But what I did early on is I would identify people that I thought had some giftedness, let's say, in leading small groups. I'd take more for coffee. I'd sit down. I'd sort of share my vision. I'd set some parameters. I'd give them some time to pray on it. And then they get back to me in a couple of weeks. And if they said, yes, you know, I'd do that with another person. And then we collect them up and we do training, just some basic training. You just develop a curriculum, just a common sense curriculum. Okay. This is kind of how you would run a small group meeting. This is kind of what you would do. These are the kind of questions you'd ask. Here's some curriculum ideas or some lesson planning ideas. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to develop that, but you give them some, some um, framework, to sort of uh, build their group on. And then you would preach on it. You got to preach on it, right? You got to educate your people, let them know how important small group ministry is, what it accomplishes, get people to sign up for them, appoint someone to sort of oversee them and plug people in, Uh, you know, create your on-ramps, whether it's you fill out a card or fill out a form or have a conversation with so-and-so. You have to have an on-ramp so people that are interested can communicate their desire. And then you start meeting. And when those groups kind of outgrow themselves, then you divide them up and you maybe once every year or so, you kind of reboot them and you have new and fresh groups that are started. And by the way, that can be fun too, because let's say there's someone in your group that rubs you the wrong way. <laughs> it's sort of an out for you. You know, okay, I put up with this guy for a year, love him. Maybe don't like him so much. Uh, it's my opportunity to, you know, break out and form another group. So there are those kinds of challenges and dynamics. I would say um, it often starts in the proverbial pulpit where you're preaching on the need for these things. Um, you know, you do a sermon series on discipleship and then share some ideas for how you want to disciple people. 
developing leaders, you know, ministries rise or fall on leadership. So developing leaders, setting good expectations, setting boundaries for people. How, how often should we meet? How long do I need to commit to this for? And then just run that play over and over and over and over again. And before long, you'll develop a robust network of small groups. I think that for, I, I have talked to some pastors over the years that are like, oh, you know, we got a few small groups, but, you know, it's not really our thing. Well, that's fine. Because it's not like there's a book, chapter, and verse that I can point to that says, you know, you have to have uh, small groups in your church composed of these this number of people meeting on this night. Again, these are practical. This is like pastoral theology, right? This is just practical advice on how to lead a church. Um, but I would say, in light of what's going on in culture now, if you haven't taken the time to develop a robust small group ministry, you're now way behind schedule because we're seeing the need for it more than ever. You know, like during the this last lockdown in Canada, where we were permitted to have 10 people, right? I noticed a lot of churches were saying, okay, well, we're going to obey the law, but we're just going to have multiple services every week of 10 people. Well, we've been doing that for years. It's called small groups, right? They just don't meet at the building. We've been doing that for a long, 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 for 20 years. Um, but that that's not a substitute for the church institute, the, the, the corporate gathering of believers either. Uh, I think that accomplishes something different. So I think churches are, are pr- hopefully realizing that um, they need to get on this, and I would encourage them to do that, to, to get on developing robust networks of small groups. So at least you, know, you have some vehicle for some basic ministry, even if you know, you're under persecution or threat. Good. Well, how hopeful are you about the church in Canada and the future of it? Yeah. Uh, That's a hard question to answer. Um, You know, Jesus taught us, and everybody knows this, that Christ said to us, he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say that he's going to build the church in Canada. He didn't say he's going to build the church in every location. He didn't say that every single church is going to flourish he didn't say there's not going to be times when there's going to be a rise and fall in the church. So we can't just bank on that. At the end of the day, there always will be a remnant of faithful believers. But if the church in Canada as a whole fails to be faithful to the gospel and to its mission and fails to posture itself as Christ's embassy on earth, out from under the authority of the state, I, I think we're going to see a massive decline in the Canadian church. And we will mourn that. And society will feel that in ways that it has never before anticipated. At the same time, uh, when God judges a nation and the people of God dwindle, he does it often to purify a church, to separate the wheat from the chaff to create a stronger church. And so I, I'm, I'm not super hopeful that uh, like numerically or publicly, there's going to be as many churches, faithful churches around, in, let's say 10, 15 years from now. I am very hopeful that there will always be a remnant of faithful followers who will be more passionate, more committed to discipleship, um, more strategic, 
and and a certain level maybe even more influential in culture and in society than the current Canadian church is. So that's sort of like heartening and disheartening to think about. Um, but I think it's I think it's the the way it is. Um, the the pressures on church leaders today are incredible. And um, many of us are dealing with issues that we've only read about in church history. And many of the professors that trained us, um, if you've been to seminary or Bible college, they, they've never seen, first of all, many of those men have never even pastored churches in any meaningful way, but many of them, they've never seen this either. So we're kind of figuring our way through it. But we should have some prophetic insight. You know, we have, we have scriptures, we have um, the Holy Spirit inside of us to guide us and direct us. And even if we're not entirely sure how to respond or how to restructure, we have to, it, good leadership starts with acknowledging that there's a problem and then ca calling upon the Lord and seeking wise counsel for how to, how to respond to it. So the first thing we need to see, I think, in our country, if we're going to respond to the challenges, is more Christian churches need to acknowledge there's a problem, a big problem. The church is under attack. It's under threat. Without question, I would say this with 100% certainty, it's being persecuted. Now, I wouldn't say that very many of our persecutors think they're persecuting us. I wouldn't be prepared to say that. I, I, I don't think they think they're persecuting us. But because they're influenced by devilish forces, satanic powers, because they are secularized, because they, they don't understand what the church is, they're not godly men and women, their actions are in essence persecuting the church, seeking to bring disrepute to the church, seeking to reduce the church, seeking to silence the church. That's, that's persecution, right? And people suffered because of it. So um, we have to identify and put words to the issues. And then really what I want to accomplish in this podcast is to help people to think just from like a structural strategic perspective, how to respond. And yeah, we, we, need, to, we need to pray and we need to preach hard and we need to um, be a voice in the public sphere. But I really think we also need to structure our churches in such a way so that we're, we're not we never find ourselves in a position again where our ministry is ever actually closed. Um, and I think there's some you know structures that we can put in place like small groups and flock meetings then continue to promote for the church, the church institute, the collective gatherings that will enable us to, you know, continue to do ministry, whether we're locked down or not locked down, whether church is legal or illegal, we can continue to be salt and light. The, the answer is definitely not Zoom church. Okay, that's not that's not the answer. The answer is not stick people in front of a television set and let them watch a show. That I think actually contributes to the prob part of the problem that got us here, and that churches become largely a spectator sport, and people have a very diminished view of what the church is as an organism, as a body, as a family, and so Zoom churches just kind of reinforces that falsehood and that narrative. And am I going to say that no one can experience any sanctification through Zoom church? Of course not. But it's not church. Zoom church isn't church. There's dozens of things in the New Testament that we're commanded to do that you cannot do on Zoom church. That's just teaching. 
and listening to some worship music. That's not church. Let's not call it that. It's not church. So those are my thoughts. Um, hopeful that there will be a remnant. Uh, not hopeful that all churches will survive or that all churches are faithful churches, but definitely very much believing that God in some way, shape, or form will continue to build his church and the gates of hell will absolutely not prevail against it at the end of the day. Awesome. Well, next week, I know many of us are participating in a week of sacred assembly, prayer and fasting uh, for our nation. And so we would just invite all of our listeners to look that up. There'll be in the, the notes for the podcast, a link for that. And we would invite you to participate in prayer uh, and in fasting for our nation. That is absolutely one step we can take right away as Christians. Also, uh, if you would like to, we would love to have you share this podcast. Uh, It's now available in many, many different platforms. And we would love for you to put the word out on social media to help us get the word out so that we continue to help you lead better now. Thank you so much for your time today, Aaron. And we will be back again next week. 